Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers Season 3, Part 10, The Archive. What did I write about this episode at the time that it aired on July 16th, 2017? Or in this case, slightly later, since as I mentioned in the intro, there were events going on this week, this weekend that this aired. I was at a wedding, so I had to kind of write a little bit late the next morning. Usually I would write that night and before I went to bed, publish the, uh, f- the the response. But this is still pretty fresh off the presses of 2017. And uh, after I read that, we are going to look at uh, the first minute, or rather listen to the first minute of Part 11. I'll give a fair warning before that if you haven't watched it yet. Here's what I wrote. I initially suspected that Laura's inclusion in Laura is the one would not be limited to another character's dialogue. And I was correct about that. But here's where the surprise comes in. I thought Cheryl Lee would be appearing as a character existing in the physical world, probably with Dougie. I still think that may happen, though I'm less certain now. Perhaps Cooper will find her in another dimension rather than his own reality. But what actually occurs is, in a way, more exciting, startling, and moving. If I expected the log lady to pronounce her name, I certainly didn't realize that Laura's own creator, in the form of his on-screen character Gordon Cole, would be the one to see her face. The scene already gets off to a slightly uncanny meta start as we watch Gordon Doodle. The FBI chief, like the man who invented and plays him, is apparently an artist. His drawing represents an off-screen hand reaching ominously toward a deer. With this revelation paving the way, a bigger one greets us at Gordon's door. Before his sight clears, or fogs over, to see Albert, Gordon sees a weeping Laura framed by his doorway. I'm not sure why exactly this is, but right away we know that we aren't cutting into a close-up of the face behind the door. Rather, the face itself is giant, filling the entire door and Gordon's field of vision. The reverse shot certainly helps, with a ghostly trace of the close-up superimposed over Gordon. But I think I felt this sensation immediately. Twin Peaks, and Lynchworks in general, invest doors with a special meaning. See the apartment door that Henry peeks through, the closet door Jeffrey hides behind, the many doors ominously passed through in Mulholland Drive, the door open to free the lost girl at the end of Inland Empire, the door opened by the rabbits in that same film, and the door that Laura herself looks around from both directions in Firewalk with me. The train car door whose opening frees Renette and seals Laura's own fate by giving her that ring. The curtained door to the lodge, the door Audrey is chained to. The door Cooper opens before he's shot, a fate I half expected for Gordon based on his startled reaction. And so far in the return, the red door to Dougie's house and, most notably, the door which Mother bangs on when Cooper is in the room with Renette, itself reminiscent of the banging on the door at the end of Mulholland Drive. It's impossible not to think of the mother during Gordon's uncanny encounter. It's also, of course, impossible not to think of the actual image being used. A close-up as Donna opens the door for her in Firewalk with me. She's crying because she's just seen her own father exit the door of their home, and she realizes who he really is. Laura's trauma is larger than life and still dominates Twin Peaks. And now for the opening minute of part 11. Again, if you haven't seen the episode yet, pause, check out here, check it out. Or if you don't mind hearing what we, uh, what we see, both the audio of the scene and my description of it, then keep listening. Nice. 
Someone there. Fade up on a mountain range similar to that which opened last week, but either a different spot or an overlapping but different angle. Green dominates the frame, with tops of leafy, not evergreen trees in the foreground, and presumably evergreen trees climbing up the bottom of the slope, covering the top of the outgrowth behind the mid-ground range and winding up the right side of that group of peaks, while the steep stone faces form a band across the center of the composition. A bit of sky, white misty clouds with some blue peeking out above, fills the top of the image, but it is not a particularly overcast day. The back mountain, at least, is brightly sunlit, and the shadow of cloud cover passes rather rapidly across this landscape. This still shot lasts less than five seconds before we cut to a blurred pan right in the middle of its movement. We're facing a white trailer with blue trim, the canopy of a deciduous tree hovering over its right side. The near whip pan concludes with a short-haired brunette boy in blue. Blue jeans, blue flannel, perhaps even blue or at least dark shoes, catching a baseball that anchored this pan in his black-gloved left hand. He immediately tosses the ball back to another boy, maybe slightly younger, short but not buzzed hair, in a gray t-shirt, khakis, and khaki-covered rough-terrain sneakers. His mid is also black on the outside, though tan on the inside, and he cups the ball for a moment before throwing it back. Behind him we see the left side of the trailer, with the front end of an RV poking out behind its gutter and some shrubbery hemmed in by stones. There are two sets of double windows, and the one closest to the corner has closed red curtains. The other, less notable set, has white drapes blocking our view of the inside. The third whip pan more clearly shows another blurred boy, apparently with blonde hair and a red shirt with white stripes, standing between these two others. He was in the earlier pan as well, but it was aimed higher and he was easy to miss. Having made this third catch of the sequence, the boy in blue gently tosses an underhanded ball to the boy in the middle, who stretches his glove out but misses the ball. We notice two other baseballs in the grass behind him. These boys stand on a gravel path beneath another set of windows obscured by cardboard or construction paper taped to the inside, and some undistinguished plants and large pots and the wooden doorstep and a concrete entry below. The camera still follows the ball, which is now rolling towards it, and then our shot eventually pauses on the edge of the grass, which lines this gravel, allowing the ball to roll out of frame as the middle youngest boy's lower body enters the shot, and then he crouches down to pick it up. Now he anchors the frame as the shot rises to follow him back to his former spot. We see he has the longest hair of the trio, also wears jeans, what looks like miniature work boots, and his red shirt features yellow and green stripes, as well as white. He lightly tosses the ball underhand, and the blue boy effortlessly catches it, casually throwing it back to the opposite side, where the boy in the gray shirt tosses it again and misses the kid in blue, who turns and chases after the rolling baseball. The camera never halts its panning movements until the last few seconds of this shot, with a gnarled plant and a large stone pot holding down the right side of the composition. The little middle boy runs after his older companion down a winding path, and we cut to the end of that path, 
framed by thick shrubbery on its left side, some grass with neater shrubbery on its right, and a taller line of trees across the road, with power lines stretching overhead. Here the ball rolls out into the paved road. The blue boy enters the frame on the left side and follows the path toward the road. We cut to a reverse shot across the street as he exits the path, and into the quiet, empty street, a couple mailboxes and the trailer behind him. In the background, trees slope up a hill or a mountain, and we notice the red wireframe form of a bridge behind tall weeds just around the bend. The camera pans to follow the boy jogging into the tangled grass and weeds across the street, where he bends to pick the ball up and turns back toward his friend. The camera panning back with him until something catches his attention, and he stops in his tracks, turning toward his right. An over-the-shoulder shot shows him glancing across patchy grass and another gravel path, or perhaps the same one, the geography is a little confusing, into a thickly wooded area where a woman's body lies. Cut back to the medium wide of him leaning forward and cautiously approaching. Cut to a closer shot of the two other boys standing still and staring curiously from the middle of the road, the bridge right behind them. A medium shot of the blue boy, his open mouth revealing braces, continuing to approach. And then, in a return to the over-the-shoulder shot, we see the woman is actually moving, her bare arms bloodied and dirtied, pulling her forward as she lies on the ground. She looks up, her long, dark-hair-framed face, particularly the right side, soaked in blood. Our minute ends. And that is it for this episode. We are now into part 11, which will officially begin tomorrow with the welcome episode. So see you then, and... uh Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. <laughs> <laughs>